0: Let's do it. All right. Okay, dude. What's up? What's up? Yeah. Really happy that we managed to record a second week in a row. We're and, like, then it's,
1: and then it's the third week in a row of, of calls, right?
0: Oh, true. We're like really starting like a habit here. Yeah. Yeah, it's going pretty well. I caught a cold, which sucks a little bit, but seems to be the time of season, uh, time of the year for it
1: so mm. no i will but, not get sick
0: yeah no it's a little bit of a shame but in the office everybody was coughing and uh, sneezing for like two weeks and i thought i managed to get through it untainted but it caught me as well so
1: nobody has traveled to uh china
0: lately right nope that was all before luckily for us <laughs> i really hope so um i don't feel that sick No, so, um, yeah, it's been a pretty good week. I spent a lot of time with Rust. I started working on uh, one of the side projects. And it's an interesting problem because it has a lot of, like, moving pieces with a lot of essentially blocking I.O. So coming from other languages, my immediate thought was, hey, let's set up background threads and have everything run in, like, their own... Yeah, everything run in their own thread. Use message passing between the different things to ensure we can communicate. And Rust is interestingly capable of this. And then at the same time, it's super annoying because of the memory uh, management that it has.
1: you have to do it yourself? or
0: uh, No, but it's really explicit what piece of data is shared between threads and which one isn't. And it's surprisingly hard to implement... Like I just went ahead and started implementing the same like background worker pattern that I've implemented like a gazillion times in Java, for example. Mm-hmm. But due to the way how Rust makes it super explicit who owns which part of the memory, it's really hard to actually start something in a thread and still access it from like a different thread and these kinds of things. Sounds like it makes
1: you a uh, better engineer, though. Yeah, you will definitely architect this in a uh,
0: reliable way. So it has definitely been a really interesting learning experience. I've also banged my head against the table a bunch of times. And the so how should I say, for me, who's still like a novice in Rust, it seems that Rust's concurrency model is really focused or really like ideally suited for fork and join models, where you create threads to do a very specific calculation and then join all of them together essentially to get the result. So Mm. um, essentially go wide, split a task up in like many different chunks and then merge all of them together to get like one result. And there's like the tooling in the library for this is pretty good. There are really interesting libraries in the Rust ecosystem that support this, but actually building something that just runs in the background forever until your program closes, I've not found a very easy or nice way to do this. And it could just be that I missed like the obvious things, or that I'm still too inexperienced to devise like smart ways to manage the memory. But it has been more challenging than I thought.
1: Hmm. Did you uh, did you put a lot of research into it or not? Because it, it does seem like it would be something that people have come across often.
0: So I read a few. So I read in the like a chapter in the official Rust book on concurrency and i read i bought a rust book like a different book myself and i've read the chapter there on concurrency and both really go into like this fork and join model but none of them has an example of building more of like a service that runs in the background one idea that i am pursuing now is whether or not it actually makes sense to do this as like a background thread if that's really the right approach in this language, or if it would make more sense to implement this using uh, asynchronous functions and building on like an async runtime,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and this is something that I want to explore next in like a yeah prototypey way to see if it a solves the problem that I'm currently facing, and b if it's something that is a little bit more ergonomical to use than what I'm currently trying to do with threading.
1: Yeah, no. maybe m- yeah. That sounds to me that perhaps you uh i don't know you, you ever think that uh you know like as programmers we kind of associate one problem with another problem or just as a regular yeah. person yeah maybe 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 that's that's what's going on here maybe you're associating the problem with what you've seen before so you're trying to do the same thing that you used to do but perhaps because of the new language there's something that will solve that problem but it has its own way of doing it that you haven't seen before
0: that is really the theory that I have currently, that yeah. the model, especially the implementation that I use for the background threads, is really inspired by things that I've done before in other languages. That just doesn't really work in Rust because, yeah, the memory is just managed completely differently. And I'm not sure what like the rusty way in quotation marks would be to implement this. I've seen a lot of... Interest and development in the like around async in Rust.
1: Yeah, I've yeah, I'm not even in the ecosystem and I've seen a lot of articles about that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's something like I've looked through a documentation a little bit today. And if it is as easy as the documentation makes it out to be, it could be a really really nice pattern for what I want to implement because it fits this essentially pretty well. I have, if I have a lot of different components where each component has a different purpose that ultimately form a pipeline where you have the first component that waits for external input does something with that input and then pushes it down the pipeline and then you have the next component that waits for input from the first component does something with it and pushes it further down the line and then at the end you have a third component which again takes input from the second component does something with it and either pushes it to a client or kind of keeps it around for queries, these kinds of things. Hmm. And I could imagine from what I've seen, and this is like the theory, the hypothesis that I want to test next, is that especially for this pipeline thing, async could be really, really nice because it makes it very easy to implement these like asynchronous tasks that need to be executed based on a input. So I can hook into a stream, for example, and say, hey, every time the stream gets a new item, execute this function asynchronously. And then my yeah, unit of work is like very nicely defined. It's captured in essentially one function. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah much more readable, much more maintainable than what I'm doing now where I'm building like a super complex worker type of thing that has its own like, event loop and background thread and these kinds of things. So my hope would be that with this pattern um, using async, I could actually like reduce my lines of code and make it much more explicit what's happening mm-hmm. while relying on essentially a really nice library in the background to kind of manage all of the state and have the triggers based on like these external events and everything that hooked up in in the platform or in the library. And I just have to kind of define what happens when there's an input.
1: Yeah. Is this, the, uh, is this the project that you w- were talking about uh, last week where you can't get it out of your head? Yeah,
0: essentially, yes.
1: Okay. Well, that's a good thing you got started on it, though, or at least started researching some things, even yeah, though been... maybe you didn't get that far. Or
0: No, I've been trying to kind of push one commit each day, which uh-huh. is in itself a very arbitrary goal because adding a commit to a repo is pretty easy. is <laughs> not necessarily the most useful metric. Yeah, it's definitely one that I started to game a little bit. So there have been like one or two readme changes because I just didn't have time to work on it this day and just. Oh, keep so you're street. making
1: it like a goal then? You're yeah. making it a goal.
0: Okay. Not an official goal, but it has been more like for me for fun.
1: Okay, that's funny.
0: So yeah, um, I think we can actually talk a little bit about what this project does because it's not really secret. Yeah, I'm very happy. Sim racer occasionally. It's not uh, not a hobby, uh, hobby. Not a hobby that I do very regularly. Or yeah, it's not something where I'm super involved in, but something that I do quite frequently with great passion. Yeah. And it's like a little bit of an on, on and off basis. I do it for half a year and then I not doing it for uh, a few months and then I'm hopping back in. I see. And what I've always wanted to do is experiment with the APIs that these different racing simulations have, because they provide a lot of output that you can hook into on the telemetry for example like what is your car doing Um, on the physics that go on in the world and on the whole session like what are the current lap times who's in front who's in the back these kind of things Mm -hmm. but the issue is that essentially each racing simulation has its own api and the interesting simulations the ones that i really like to play have like the most annoying apis because they use proprietary windows apis to publish the data so for one, it only runs on Windows. B, mm. you have to essentially use C to get the data out. It's of course supported in C Sharp as well, but it's a really like low level API that is implemented there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's not necessarily the ecosystem that allows like fast prototyping and iteration. And it's also not very accessible for, for me as well. Like I'm not a C Sharp developer. Yeah. Don't the be. tools and libraries that are available are all pretty much unsupported or outdated. Like they work, there's especially one around that works pretty well and is reasonably up to date. But it's still like, it doesn't feel like the, like your typical, in quotation marks, like open source project that you would expect to find nowadays in like 2020. It, there's not a lot of documentation. There's no real support for it. There's no community around this. But wait,
1: wait, when you're talking about simulations, were you saying you need to know these kinds of things when you're about to play, or how is it that you play?
0: It's a little bit of both. So some of them are really, really useful to know. So for example, how much fuel you have in the car can be something that's really nice to just put on like a second screen that you know when to pit. It's also really nice to use helpers to figure out how much fuel you need to put in the car to make it to the end of the race. Because not all simulations have like nice APIs for this or offer this as a as a feature or a function.
1: So how do you check that out in wait, I saw i so typically get the game. You just you download the game and then
0: you yeah. what like do you get different types of um, Yeah, so the moment you start uh, the game, it essentially starts outputting data to an API. And in most cases, this is a list of keys and values. So it's a flat list with hundreds of properties um, that can contain anything from like your tire temperature, your fuel level, to uh, kind of G-forces. Um, there's some, depending on like the simulation in the car, you can have really complex, can get really complex data on, for example, like the, the hybrid uh, electronical engines in your car. And like what mm. your energy recovery system is doing, and these kind of things. So there's like a pretty broad spectrum of different parameters that these simulations output. And then there are like obvious things like where are you on track? Are you on the track? Are you on the grass? Are you in the pits? Um, this is something that is published. Are there any flags out? So is there like a yellow caution flag out, or uh, has the race ended? These kinds of things are published by the simulations. This is oftentimes referred to as like the telemetry part. And then you also have a session API. And the session API is like who's currently in the race, what position are they in, what was their last lap time, what was their best lap time, what car are they driving, these kinds of things. And depending on what you want to do, there are really interesting use cases for both. So the session API is, for example, used a lot in streams, like when you go to, like to Twitch and you watch somebody play one of the simulations. Mm-hmm. They oftentimes have overlays that show their position where the other people are. Sometimes they have like a graphical map where you see your position on the track. And this is all powered by the Session API. And then on the other side, for me as a driver, for example, it's sometimes really helpful to automate a few tasks around my car, for example, figuring out how much fuel I have to put in. Right. And this is something that you can get from, yeah, from the simulation and then you do your own calculations based on, like, how much fuel do I still have? How many laps are there to go? How much have I consumed on average per lap? And then you kind of can calculate how much you still need. And this is something that's really easy to, for example, put on, like, a secondary display. Or if you want to have, a, like, an app on your phone or, like, a website that uh, runs locally on your machine that you can yeah, access from, like, other devices to kind of yeah, create a second screen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, yeah. For your fuel and things like that. Exactly. There are really, really nice setups with like incredibly uh, complicated uh, dashboards that people. What do you mean? Built. Like people have? Oh, people have built already. Yeah, so there okay. are there are a few tools that you can use. Some are free, some are um, paid. That are for like essentially like this dashboard building. Like you have a few mobile apps, for example, that you can install that can hook into these sims. And then sometimes you need to install like for some games, you need to install like a local client on your PC. For some. Uh, it's enough to just have them on the same network because the API is um, pushed over UDP, mm-hmm. so just through the network. So what? What?
1: So where? Uh, where do you fall into this then?
0: So what I find super annoying is that each of these games has their like essentially its own API standard. The different games publish different data in a different format through different protocols. So for example, like the Formula One games use UDP and just essentially publish or push packets into the network that you can listen to. While uh, Assetto Corsa and iRacing on the PC, they both use these Windows memory mapped files and neither of them is like really convenient to use. And if I want to create a program that works with all of these simulations, I essentially have to implement either the data layer three times or I have to implement like three different applications. Yeah, So what I would really like to explore is if it's possible to essentially define kind of a shared standard for this telemetry and session data and implement one tool that hooks into these sims and then republishes the data in this well-defined format through an interface that is super easy to use from other programming languages and environments. So not use like a proprietary Windows API, but for example, something like WebSocket or GraphQL or maybe UDP, whatever, but have like a very well-defined standard that everybody can look into that you can also, for example, use from JavaScript or from Python or these kinds of things mm-hmm. and so that you don't have to rely on like hacking with Windows and see header files and these kinds of things. Nice. How's it going then? Um, so you just started one week now? yeah so i've i've had like one or two iterations working on this so the idea is pretty old Uh, i've been carrying around this uh, with me for probably over a year in like very different forms i once started doing this with like a c-sharp library because to be fair that is the easiest one to get going because you do have some support Mm -hmm. but the ecosystem is really it's a little bit complicated for example for iRacing there's a library that implements kind of their API and helps you or abstracts away this memory map file and these kind of things. But the library is six years old, I think, and doesn't have a license. Oh. So for an open source project, it's really hard to kind of figure out how you are actually allowed to use this. And this has been my biggest issue that in kind of the sim racing ecosystem in general, I feel there are are some apps that have been built like commercial products to solve a few of these issues. And then there are a lot of people who very passionately have dedicated their time to build small tools and utilities that are sometimes open source, sometimes they're freeware, but in a lot of cases, they are not, either they're not supported anymore or they don't support, they work, but they don't support kind of the latest cars and tracks, for example. Like it's always a little bit of a gamble what you get and whether or not it's still supported or not. Because most of the stuff, in my experience, has been written by people as a hobby in their free time. And yeah, you cannot expect them to kind of maintain them for years. Yeah. Which raises the question mark if I would be able to maintain my stuff for years. But (laughs) let's leave that uh, out of the question for now. Yeah, this is where um, the idea has come from a little bit. And I have... I've tried a few of these things, like building a few of these tools myself, uh, in the past, and has always been a little bit troublesome because, yeah, like I've mainly played iRacing, so that's the only one I can really speak about. But yeah. you, the API definition is essentially a C header file that you get, that defines how many bits you have to read to get the different properties, mm. and it, there's very little documentation. What do these properties actually mean? How do they translate to what's happening in the sim? That sucks. It's it's really a list of like keys and the unit that the value is in. And then you have to figure out what that key really means. And sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not so obvious. Yeah. And the community is like super welcoming and uh, very responsive. So if you are going in there to ask questions, you will get an answer uh, in most cases pretty quickly. But it's still like... Yeah, I find it a little bit tough. We have and this is like a really a two-edged sword, and it's not necessarily something I have a very strong strong opinion on, but we have been we have gotten used to like a really high quality from open source projects. If we look at like the latest frameworks that have come out or just how repositories nowadays are set up on GitHub, like you have typically like good open source projects have a lot of like documentation and tooling and
1: yeah. Definitely. These
0: kinds of things. And in a way, it's really nice for developers because you get all these resources that you need to be successful with that technology. On the other hand, of course, it also requires the huge investment of the maintainers to kind of create this uh, material. So I don't want to say every open source project should or must have this, but it's something that I feel is a little bit out of whack in this specific scenario or in this community. What do you mean out of whack though? Uh, Yeah, where most of the stuff is just... So for some things, you literally get a zip file and like a forum thread, and this is the code base. And mm-hmm. there's not even like a GitHub repository, for example, that you could fork and maintain or something.
1: Ooh. Mm-hmm.
0: There's <laughs> yeah, documentation that is essentially a PDF file somewhere in a the repo, these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And yeah, again, it makes sense if you look at who created this, when and under what conditions. But I still feel it would be nice to provide something that's a little bit kind of higher level, a little bit better documented and supported. And I always had the feeling that if I want to build something just for fun and for my own sake in this environment, there's so much research I need to do to understand fully what all these parameters do and these kind of things that mm-hmm. when I'm spending this time anyway, then let's also make sure that we create something of value for the next person that has to go through this. Yeah, I just... Uh
1: sucks writing documentation though
0: i actually don't mind it that much
1: i know you don't (laughs) you're a very unique specimen
0: you i know you don't you're all about documentation it's it's really good i mean so one of the uh, things that i find really interesting around this and why i'm motivated to do this is that i'm really interested in this aspect of like community building and not just developing something for the fun of developing it, but also building something that actually solves an issue, helps people, and also helping these people be successful with it. Yeah. This is an aspect of open source that I find really interesting. And I might get super annoyed of this. And like when we talk over uh, about this in half a year again, I might have been completely burned and don't want to do this ever again. But it's something that I do find interesting because, yeah, in the end, It's one thing to write the code and put something out there, but then for other people, yeah, for it to be useful to them, you also need the documentation. And I do find it really interesting what might be possible if we were to create like this community around the tool. That if you find a few people that are uh, interested in this and engaged, how that can help improve the tool uh, in itself, but also maybe help provide these resources and have some people who can answer like stack overflow questions and just trying to provide a more modern kind of developer experience within this niche. Yeah, that's cool because right now, like most of the discussions are in like forum threads and yeah, the tooling is not that great. Like none of it is tested really. For example, like you're pulling in a library that somebody wrote, yeah, on a weekend their every time and, and it has its pros and cons. Yeah, it's nice to see so many people contribute, but I'm also wondering, especially since the tech stack is so limited, like you have to essentially use something that can read these shared memory map files, which means C, C++, C sharp, that we're probably just, there are probably a lot of people who would really like to play with this, but that are coming, for example, from web development and are familiar with JavaScript and TypeScript and HTML, CSS, these kinds of things but who have never written a line of C in their life. And for that Yeah,
1: but I mean, might,
0: there's a lot of web
1: developers with C-sharp experience. That is
0: true. But I do see this question popping up quite often in the forums, for example, how to use this from JavaScript in particular, because there are a lot of JavaScript devs out there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And yeah, it is not possible to hook into this from JavaScript, I can tell you that much. I hate that, though. JavaScript or... Shared memory map files.
1: No, that that you would want to tap into something with, I guess that you want to like impose your own what you're oh. familiar with kind of thing, which isn't it isn't
0: bad, but but I do understand it. Like if I look at the tools, so the commercial tools that are available, for example, that uh, implement these dashboards, for example, they're all web based. What the people have done is they created their own server to essentially provide or map the data from the shared memory map file a format that they can consume in their web pages Mm -hmm. so they wrote their own server that runs on your pc that essentially probably pushes some json to the web app right Um, right yeah all the user-facing stuff is still web tech and i think nobody really has built for example like a tool in c sharp with like a c sharp ui that does a dashboard There probably is like don't want to put myself out there too much but there probably is such a tool but most i've (laughs) seen are the ones that are really so for example used for streaming are all web-based in the end
1: yeah nice yeah so what's what's next then
0: so yeah the big issue right now is figuring out kind of the architecture and essentially how to hook into the simulation and push the data from there through this pipeline and Essentially, create a proof of concept that it's feasible. There are some really interesting uh, resource constraints there. So most of this data is published at a rate of 60 hertz, so 60 updates per second, which need to be processed. And need to be, you of course want the data as soon as possible. You don't want it with a delay of like two minutes because you do some fancy analytics on it mm. or some calculations. So there's like a little bit of like this real-time constraint coming in. The memory management, I think, is quite interesting because if you essentially reinitialize the data every 60 seconds, uh, 60 times a second, sorry, it might just be that you have a huge memory leak pretty quickly. So there are really interesting problems to solve um, on a technical level. And then once there's kind of an answer to these questions, then, of course, uh, the big, big, big thing is the question whether or not it's actually possible to create... kind of a shared data model that all of these simulations map into. Like, is it actually possible that you can use one API to code against like three or four different racing simulations?
1: That'd be really cool from what you explained.
0: It would be really fun. Uh, I think yeah. this combined with um, accessibility from JavaScript uh, in particular would really allow a lot more people to contribute to the ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, which is super exciting like it would be really fun not just to build this tool but really build a community um, around this And coming from Ruby it would be really nice to build a nice community around this where people are like yeah. super friendly and helpful and these kind of things and that's a huge motivation for me to kind of explore this and try to um, see this through. I think the reality will be that it's not possible to get like a hundred percent coverage there's probably data in there that is so specific to a certain simulation that you will never Mm -hmm. be able to get it out in a format that makes sense. Yeah. So I don't think it's a tool that will satisfy all needs, but hopefully there's like this 80-20 solution that we can achieve where most of the data is in there and it's usable enough for like 80% of the applications and then if you really want to do something very specific then yeah sadly you might need to implement it yourself but that's already the case now so it doesn't get worse it only it makes it a lot easier for like the other 80% yeah
1: it sounds like you will get a really good response from that from what you've told me
0: yeah I do want to see if I can get a little bit better feeling for how interested the community actually is in this because so far I've just been working on this behind closed doors a little bit and I'm following the for example like the forums a little bit but I've also not announced anything like this or asked for feedback so hmm. that is interesting though
1: because you're in a little dilemma there I could imagine it being extremely helpful if you just went to a community and be like hey guys like I'm actually building this or um what do you guys think?" or do you guys have any suggestions? Anyone has any experience? You, uh, I can imagine you get getting some really, really great responses from that. But the other question is, do you want to? I like expose this out.
0: Yeah, that's a little bit the question. Like in a way, uh, I th- yeah, I agree with you. I think the the feedback and the response would probably be be very positive and really valuable. Like what holds me back a little bit is that I don't know when this might be ready. Like it could very well be that I need half a year. With the time that is available and the complexity of this to get something going that is might be considered like a minimum viable product. and yeah, that that's a little bit a question for me. Like I don't want to kind of drum up hype before there's anything really to show for. So my, no, of course, but you can
1: yeah my
0: hope was that it's that I'm uh, able to build kind of this prototype and prove a few of the important questions, like the technical challenges, prove that they are feasible. And once that is done and there's like, for example, as soon as we can start discussing how this API might look, I think this is a moment where it's really nice to engage the community. And I hope that I'm there pretty quickly. But I also, yeah, as long as I'm not really sure that it's doable, I also feel it's a little bit too early to kind of go out and
1: ask for feedback. Mm, Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. One of the,
0: like... (laughs) one of the minor details of this uh, but one of the things that i find super annoying for example is that so i'm trying to build this in rust because it's just a beautiful language that i really want to learn mm. and it i think it's really well suited for this because you do have to deal with like a lot of these low level apis that are really really close to c and rust is really great at these kind of things the issue though is that rust is still pretty new and the ecosystem is not necessarily as mature as you would wish it would be. So I'm really set on using GraphQL as the public API. Beautiful. Exactly beautiful, easy to use from JavaScript. you can really drill down on the data that you actually want to use because not every like widget or dashboard needs all the data that you get. For the fuel yeah. thing, for example, you just need the fuel, you don't need like 600 other parameters. So I think it's actually really well suited for this. The only issue is the uh, the Rust implementation of GraphQL doesn't support subscriptions yet. But subscriptions would be the ideal implementation here where you can push data whenever it changes and you don't need to query it all the time.
1: Wait, GraphQL
0: has this? Yeah, GraphQL has subscriptions. I did not know. It that. is one of the coolest features of GraphQL. You can subscribe to... Yeah, you can essentially subscribe to a query and whenever the data changes, it pushes an update.
1: How does it look like how does that look like in the back end though? What do you mean subscribe? Like do you have to um in the back end have like your WebSocket linked to that?
0: Yeah, so there's a very loose specification and a reference implementation by Apollo that uses WebSockets as the protocol for this? Mm-hmm. And then I think Facebook oh, okay. had a blog post where they shared a little bit how they implemented this on their end. I think what they did is that they in their they have message queues and essentially when you make a subscription, they create a new topic for the data that you subscribe to. So for the different IDs, for example, if you want to get all updates on like user XYZ, then the websocket would essentially subscribe to a topic in their message queue for user XYZ, and whenever user XYZ changes, there's a message posted in a message queue that then gets picked up by a WebSocket server who pushes it out to the client.
1: Oh my gosh, I didn't know this.
0: And essentially what it happens is they so get the message that something cool. changed, and then they just rerun the query that they have stored and send out the data that um, is returned from the query. Mm. The issue is I that, yeah, it's that. not really well specced, and I think it really depends on like the... Library that you're using for this, how they implement this? Wait, what
1: do you? What's not well specified? The subscription from the GraphQL from GraphQL's um, documentation. Yeah, like or? especially
0: the implementation, like how you oh. were, like how you're supposed to implement the server side. Yeah. From what I've gathered is that the Apollo GraphQL sub, uh, implementation for this is considered kind of the reference implementation from a client side. And if you want to support subscriptions, you better make sure that they work with Apollo. Mm -hmm. But it could be that, I don't know, Relay or something has like a completely different approach to this. It doesn't feel like something that's like very stable yet. Okay. And in any way, it's not supported by the Rust GraphQL library anyway. So far, it's only pull, it's not push. And in this case, it would be really nice to push.
1: I really, really want to look into this now.
0: The Apollo, or generally speaking, like the GraphQL subscription?
1: Yeah, yeah, that, it is fascinating. Very interesting. Yeah, that sounds extremely because I've I've messed with this from a um, from Firebase. Yeah. like they have the same subscription concept. And when I first, because I I don't like messing with like cloud services yeah. like that, and and those kinds of like I don't know, I really really don't like it. I feel like you get sucked in and you're stuck with it pretty much uh, for the rest of your life. Uh, so I don't. I mean, I, I think it's very useful for maybe like pet projects or little example projects that you're trying to do with stuff. So, anyways, we uh, we needed to implement something like that for a live Q and A. Mm, yeah. From from like a conference, so we needed to do that, and it was the first time they're like, "All right, we're doing the." this and in, in Firebase we're setting it up because it wasn't something that needed to be recorded for example like after the conference yeah. was done you could just
0: throw it away you could
1: just like or not throw it away or maybe like export yeah. it and just like give it to somebody and be like these were the questions and uh that were asked you know because it wasn't Q&A sorry it was just questions mm. so like somebody would stand in the um in the I don't know the stage and then just everybody from the yeah. conference would just start putting their yeah. questions and then the person on the stage would just see it live yeah. like the questions being popped up and then he would be like alright I'm going to answer this one I'm going to answer this other one right yeah. so we, we we started messing with that and then with the solution that we uh, the quick one was Firebase and I got to implement that and when I started looking at how the I've never messed with it yeah. with, uh, with Firebase and you need to do it via subscriptions and I started messing with it and I was like what
0: yeah it's really not.
1: how does this it just looks like magic yeah. you know
0: it's the real-time database was it that database? Yeah, ex-
1: yeah yeah that is yeah, yeah, so yeah. fucking cool yeah so it was like just it seemed like magic Yeah. because i subscribed to to this like questions thing right and then you would uh post it from somewhere else and then there's no method that's being run it's just you know yeah. i guess it's just pretty much his website yeah. so but it was just popping up and uh from calling one method like subscribe to this yeah. and then that's it that's it that's all you needed to do and then your questions would just get updated automatically and uh it's weird because in the context of react was what threw me off you Yeah. Know? because i would i would actually subscribe to this and and i put it first on it on the state
0: mm. right yeah
1: and and there's no method to update the state on this particular like questions yeah state and there was nothing updating it it was just subscribed to it and i was like this is like magic at first and so i actually looked into it and see what it was but yeah that was fascinating so when you just said that right now with graphql and and they have that kind of the same concept i'm like what
0: yeah it's really nice i definitely hope that especially for us that the implementation comes eventually like now that async is stabilized in the language uh, i think it will take it will take a few months probably or towards the end of the year until kind of these major libraries have had the time to adapt to async and then especially around subscriptions a lot of that is based around async streaming so it makes sense that they kind of f- delayed this until the feature was stabilized in the language and until we've seen now we're seeing like better tooling pop up around this and i'm confident that this will eventually lead to the implementation of this feature in juniper is the name of the library but yeah we'll have to see anything going on with you
1: last week um i just uh i had to go to a um like our work meeting type of thing and it's like we, it's a remote first company that I work for. It. And every year we have this uh, like get together with everybody nice, yeah. in person for like a kickoff meeting of the year for goals for years. Like what we the, you know, goals, what to expect, where we headed, like the roadmap. And uh, it was really nice because I got to uh, get to whisper Elixir in there.
0: Oh, nice. You yeah. try to drum up uh, interest.
1: Yeah, exactly. So there, uh, yeah, won't go much into the details, but anyways, like there's a couple of, uh, um, issues that the company's trying to solve and it's all pretty much around concurrency and scalability and things like that, uh, that's happening. So I just talked to, uh, to one of the, uh, data engineers and kind of was like, yeah, you know, like. I've been messing with this, you know, <laughs> about it, like, sir, and the guy got immediately excited and was like, I've messed with it before. I've messed with it in college. I've messed with it in my previous company and the like, guy loved it. And he already had thought the same thing, kind of. Nice. So it was really, really cool. So it's something that we'll, we'll see. Like it's, like you know, um, like other mature companies is not something that you can just... Easily sell. That's true. Seth. To yeah. the entire, yeah, to the entire like tech team to be like, hey, like let's check out this other tech. You know, it's not something. It doesn't matter where you are. It's just not something that you can easily sell. It's like something that you need to prove. Yeah, right? yeah. So, Ideally,
0: there would be kind of a small enough use case where you can try this in isolation without having to. Like I think it's it almost never works to rewrite your whole app. No, no, no,
1: definitely not. And that's what I said to them too when I was talking about it. And then we got like excited to try to kind of pitch it. <laughs> to, uh, to the cto a little bit it was more or less like we are most certainly not saying that we should rewrite the whole on yeah. this because definitely not but let's just take a tiny little piece from there throw it you know yeah. build a service to handle it something that's very heavy on the app uh, extract it and, and just do like a standalone you know elixir app and uh and just prove it right to see that it that it's proved but yeah you need to prove it i'm gonna prove it with something else anyways it's gonna be a good practice you know what i'm what i have in mind right now is just continue learning because i that even got me more excited so i just dive deeper into learning and i've been just uh checking a bunch of resources out over the last couple days and what i think i'm gonna do is i'm gonna try and build something that is within the problem or the issue Mm -hmm. that they're facing yeah build build like a pet project app whatever yeah. and find some tools to try to simulate the environment kind yeah. of in in a way. Yeah. So I I, I don't know what, what those tools are or um, what that is yet, but I just something or
0: I have to look up the name, but there's a fascinating one that you can use use for load testing, which uses um, AWS Lambda to essentially DDoS mm-hmm. your server. And really? It's so funny. There's a fascinating article because somebody managed to pay, I think, like fifty thousand dollars in AWS fees within a few minutes because he configured the tool wrong and it spawned. Oh like, yeah, it, no, I'm not messing with that. It's, it was so funny. <laughs> like, don't I have to look it up. I'll uh, send you the link. Um, but it was That's really, amazing. really funny. And it's built so this uses a library that you don't have to use with AWS but somebody implemented something that kind of utilizes the same library for load testing, but then scales it uh, horizontally across as many Lambda functions as you want. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the fun thing is that, so Lambda has an execution limit of five minutes. And after five minutes, your function gets killed. So after like four and a half minutes, this (laughs) library starts a new function and kills the old one prematurely so that it can continue to run essentially until it, has done its job so it's pretty crazy it's super fun to see how they implemented like this horizontal scaling and then how to kind of work around all the limitations of lambda that they put there to essentially be able to send as many requests to your host as you want to
1: that's exactly what i need actually because that's kind of one of the issues that uh they're facing is just like multiple requests you know they're trying to to handle that uh in a more efficient way so i'm gonna go ahead and prove that somehow um with elixir just also that would be just an amazing place to start too yeah. you know oh that's true if, yeah if i don't have to go anywhere else and just like automatically have uh, access to it be able, yeah, and be, a, yeah, and be able to work with Elixir here yeah. already off the bat in production would be amazing. It's just what I want. So, I'm just gonna do it on the side, just as I'm learning, and then figure out something that I can simulate this with and just completely prove nice. it. Um, yeah. Yeah, sounds good. I'm trying to trying to see, but yeah. Besides that, I um been trying to tackle those goals the daily journaling slash writing yeah. is going horribly wrong <laughs> it's going that is wrong. one of the tougher but ones. I, yeah. yeah but your uh your reading uh goals have definitely inspired me not to not to uh not obviously as ambitious yeah. as 24 books but i am certainly gonna try and uh read daily I, so i got a couple of books and one of the one one of the books that i got i got two books should be coming in tomorrow or something like that. But one of them was the one you suggested uh, the other day where we were not recording. It's um, New Power.
0: Oh, for real. I also have that on my reading list. It's my, no, it's probably the third book that I'm going to read after finishing the current one. Yeah. Interesting, yeah, I'm interested to hear your take on it.
1: Yeah, yeah. so I got that book and I'm gonna start it off. Nice. That is what has been going on with me. Awesome. Yeah. But we are 50 minutes or so in it. Yeah. Think. So we should probably wrap it up. We can probably
0: cut 10 minutes from this, but I think that's a good length, yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Was really uh, yeah. nice talking? Yeah. Um, let's Same here, man. the
0: weekly recording.
1: Yeah, this is exciting. This is exciting. This is awesome, man. Yeah. Take care. All right, dude. Till next week then, yeah. See you. Bye-bye.